Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It feels like everyone in the WBBM newsroom is watching The Bear. One of the best things about the show is its knack for getting the audience inside the kitchen, giving us a sense of what it might be like to be a real chef or restaurant owner. Anything that has to do with what I do as a, as a career, I try to, uh, to kind of stay away from. But what I've heard from chef friends in, you know, the business is that it li it's so real that it like gives you PTSD and flashbacks. That's literally what they, that, that's what they tell me. When we're looking for top restaurant vibes and quality, we seek out places with a Michelin star. Lucky us, we've got a lot of them in Chicago. I'm Arielle Ravenet, and in this episode, we'll explore the culinary world and ask the questions, how does a restaurant get a Michelin star? Is that expensive plate even that good? Let's get looped in Chicago and find out. To many, the Michelin man brings up an image of a marshmallow-like humanoid waving and happy about tires. But did you know that selling these tires was the genesis of the Michelin Guide itself? In 1900 central France, the creators of the Michelin tire brand, brothers Andre and Edward Michelin, wanted a way to sell more tires in a country with fewer than 3,000 cars. So, they created a free guidebook for motorists that included things like maps and places to get fuel, or of course, tires. After 20 years, the brothers made a discovery. To quote the story off the Michelin Guide website, when Andre Michelin arrived at a tire shop to see his beloved guides being used to prop up a workbench, based on the principle that man only truly respects what he pays for, a brand new Michelin Guide was launched in 1920 and sold for seven francs. That roughly translates into 28 American cents and then around $5 today. From there, the Michelin Guide began to include things like advertisements, upscale hotels in France, and restaurants. Eventually, in 1936, the method for ranking restaurants of a finer quality they still follow today was born. Now, Michelin Guide has rated over 30,000 restaurants, spanning three continents. The guide is specially crafted to each city it covers, including places like Tokyo, London, Seoul, and of course, Chicago. It's been around for a hundred years. For a long time, it didn't bother with like the U.S. at all. It was mostly focused on, on Europe and, and Asia and like the high-end travel destination cities. Chicago earned their first Michelin guide in 2011. I spoke with Samantha Nelson, a freelance journalist who's covered Chicago's food scene for 15 years, about what this meant for Chicago chefs who wanted a star places were more, I think, able to take the risks and get the staff and, and do those things because it had already been proven, though it is a, an extremely, extremely complicated process that requires such deep resources and probably a touch of madness to, to pursue. One of the first places in the city to earn a star upon the guide's first release was Graham Elliott, an establishment named after the chef himself. I spoke with master chef Graham Elliott to learn about how we got to that point. 
And I started off with wanting to go in another creative direction. I always say that most chefs are failed rock stars. So I sang and played guitar in a band. That's what I wanted to do. And then at the same time, you know, took a job as a, a dishwasher busboy. And then on your free time, you get to go in the kitchen and, and prep things and help make stuff. And then started understanding that just like any other creative outlet, you can find your voice and do your own thing, whether it's architecture, painting, you know, that kind of deal. So I really fell in love with that. And so when you realize the world's 5 billion years old, if you're lucky for it to be like 80, I never had a day when I'm bored and just go through the motions. So I think that's the most exciting thing for me. You know, is literally going up to work and, and just thinking how you can turn something into something else. And what's your goal? Is it to do a million covers, 30 covers, three Michelin stars, I hate stars, that kind of deal. Um, it's kind of the Wild West. More like the Wild Midwest. The eponymous restaurant we mentioned was actually his first time owning and heading an establishment. It opened in 2008, three years before Michelin would create a guide in Chicago. As a chef, you're always looking at what other chefs are doing. You're trying to get exposed to things. I was in Dallas and worked at a restaurant that was like one of the top. And the number one restaurant was called the Mansion on Turtle Creek. And they brought in a guest chef to do like a special dinner, cookbook dinner, whatever. And it was a chef whose book I had always read because it was half food and half philosophy, right? Like just quotes from every philosopher you can think of and the approach and how to touch ingredients. It's like a, a beautiful romantic style when it comes to food. So he cooked that night and I, uh, I called and I begged to be able to go over there. They'd let me. I go. I help out. I think I'm 19, maybe 20. And I guess I did a good enough job to where they went to dinner afterwards and invited me. So I'm sitting there with the best chef in, in Dallas and this chef whose name is Charlie Tropper from Chicago. And I'm like, you know, the, the biggest fanboy nerd ever. What ended up happening is I moved to the mansion. I got a job cooking and then wrote to Charlie Trotter in Dallas like six times. And finally, you know, someone wrote back and said, okay, come spend three days with us. Uh, we'll go from there. And so you go, you work 16 hours, you're cleaning mushrooms or peeling carrots or whatever it is, and was offered this job. And that's what brought me to Chicago. The late Charlie Trotter is a legend in the food world, but especially in Chicago. He is credited with many popular modern food trends, including farm-to-table style dining, spotlighting vegetables in a meal, and more. Working under Trotter as a young chef helped Graham realize there's more to food than just the correct measurements. If I worked in a French restaurant where it's one teaspoon of this, one drop of that, two pieces of parsley to garnish, I always say you might as well, you know, work at the, the auto plant. You just put the wheel on. You want to be able to come in and say, if it's not broken, break it. How do we change that dish? What if we pickled this and did a crudo of that? Okay, tomorrow it's really hot. What if we just grilled this with a simple vinaigrette? What do we do here? And I think it's it's liberating and allows you to think on the fly, and that's what makes everything so fun. I love that. It really, and like, not to, you know, bastardize what you just said, but I feel like that's a lot of what Ratatouille is. You know, the, have you seen Ratatouille, the movie? I actually, <laughs> when the movie came out, 
Janine Garofalo, Pat and also all of them came in to dinner and I did a whole menu based on that movie. And the dessert was like buttered popcorn ice cream with Twizzler puree. It was like all things about the book theater. And they thought it was the coolest thing ever. And that that's what's so fun is none of those items have ever been on a menu, much less practice. It's just they're coming in, let's do this. And everyone in the kitchen is like, that's amazing. That's the only movie I think that's ever been made that really shows what a high-end kitchen is because they decided to have Thomas Keller from the French Laundry come in and be the, the consultant of it. So you could have had the kitchen where it's using tongs and kicking the oven door, you know, you know, pouring stuff out of the saute pan into the bowl. But instead, it's tweezers here. It's spooning the butter over the scallop and it's i think it, it's it shows people the romance and beauty of what a kitchen really is goes into why like you had a restaurant that got a michelin star the first year the michelin guide was released um in 2011 and so i'm curious like how can can you tell me about how you felt when you were given that first star like the first michelin guide that's released for chicago and you know, like graham elliott's on it what's interesting is i went from being the youngest four-star chef at the high-end restaurant Peninsula Chicago, getting Chicago Tribune, Chicago Magazine, Chicago Sun-Times, everything. And I was like 26. So chefs that won four stars, New York Times, it's they're all in late 50s. And that was really cool. But when I opened my own restaurant, there was so much stress and anxiety and panic that I said, you know what? We're going to go for like a two-star review instead of four. We're just going to do our food. We're going to order Ikea plates and cheap glass and you know no linen and the bartender the chef the dishwasher the runner that we all wore jeans chuck taylors and a t-shirt that had the logo were all equal and people didn't do that at that time for every city that has a michelin guide a food inspector is assigned so these inspectors look to see if a restaurant meets their list of five criteria in order to receive a star the criteria is as follows one quality of products Two, mastery of flavor and cooking techniques. Three, the personality of the chef represented in the dining experience. Four, harmony of flavors. And five, consistency between inspectors' visits. One Star is a restaurant that has high-quality cooking, worth a stop. Two Stars is a place with excellent cooking, worth a detour. And Three Stars is an establishment that provides excellent cuisine, worth a journey. You know, we get a review, and then all of a sudden Michelin comes, we get a star. And what happens, I think, is is the ego kicks in where you're like, okay, you know what? We can do food this way, but those people can't do that food that we do. You know what I mean? Like, we're at a different skill set. So let's go for this. Let's do something higher end. And what happens is you're paying X amount for rent, and you're doing two under covers and making $4 million a year. And then all of a sudden, you're doing 40 covers, 20 during the week. You know, when it's not anniversaries and birthdays and the money you make goes to here, but your costs are still up here. An important thing to note is that Michelin guide inspectors are notorious for keeping their identities a secret. Some critics make themselves known, but inspectors don't reveal themselves in order to get a reservation or when they eat at the restaurant. So I asked Graham if he was surprised to see his name listed on the first publication of the Michelin guide for Chicago. The first star, 100%. We didn't even know Michelin was coming. We did what we did. 
And so if someone said, oh, the Michelin guy comes out tomorrow, it would be like, cool, hope you all do great, love it. But for us to get one, that made us think like, wow, we've been rewarded for just what we do day in and day out without you know trying to have that be our goal. Once we knew that, we're like, well, we can do a 5, 10, 15, 20 course taste and we have this many cooks. We can do this table side. We can remove some tables, change the lighting, look at this, look at the playlist and uniforms. How do we do, you know, and all of a sudden servers are wearing suits instead of t-shirts. We have 12 tables instead of 30. We're doing yeah, all of those things. And again, the math at the end of the day dictates your business. For Graham, gaining a Michelin star was a high compliment and fuel to his fire. Of all the food critics and ranks, he believes that they are the most credible. And I think that's what's great about Michelin now. And I think, you know, with the bear, they, they mentioned this stuff, but it's like people are not looking at Chicago, Sun Times, LA Times, New York, you know, any of those things as much as they are Michelin. So I think Michelin's done an amazing job marketing themselves and the deal. So it's kind of like food shows. There's a thousand food shows on TV. But everyone I talk to that knows me, it's Master Chef or Top Chef. That's it. Those are the two cooking shows that they know. Everything else is kind of secondary. And I think that that's really cool that Michelin's been able to do that. And when I talked to the, the head of the Michelin Guide and everyone else, they said, if you're an English pub and you open in Omaha, we will go and check that out. And then before we give you a star or anything else, we will fly in the Michelin critic from, you know, Scotland or London or whatever to check it out and be like, yes, this is the same level of what we do over here. And we'll do that. There are cities that are paying tens of thousands to get them to come there. The chefs know who it is. They do everything, you know, it, it's a different political game. So I think that Michelin's the great equalizer. And they, because of that, you really respect whatever award you get. I feel like reviews and things like that is such a tricky thing. Exactly what you're saying, like, who who do they know? Who's getting sold out? Is there bias? And so I think that's so interesting that they're flying out these people from other countries to be like, no, this is credible. While a mission star may be a high honor, there are going to be people who don't like the menu, you know, for one reason or another. Everyone is entitled to their own opinion on what's tasty. But as a person who was a server for years, I can attest that at times you just can't make everybody happy. Graham told me that out of 100 people, 99 of them will love his food and one won't. It's not the customer's always right. The customer's going to complain. I'm going to redo their food. They're going to still go home and yelp about it. I have to comp their... It's like, no, you know what? It's not you, it's me. It's like a date. It's just not going to work. There's a lot of restaurants. Let me call some friends and get you a rezzo because you don't need to be here. And I'm not changing her why I am to do it. And that's where I think restaurants are at this, this weird crux of, you know, respecting the chef and the vision and the team and what we do and also trying to please people. If I do scallops with cauliflower puree and caper raisin chutney and you come in and say, 
I like nice scallops grilled and I don't like capers. And can you get rid of the cauliflower? And it's like, no, go on and cook or order something else. But it's like me going and watching a Pearl Jam concert and saying, can you change this and sing this instead and like slow it down because I don't understand what you're singing. And it's like, you know what? There's a bunch of other bands to go watch. Like, I don't need to do this at, at this stage in my life. Now, what's the difference between a regular run-of-the-mill restaurant and a Michelin star one? Well, at a normal establishment, modifications are pretty regular. However, a Michelin-level space may not make these switches if there isn't an allergy involved. Why? Because for these chefs, food is their art where they carefully crafted together flavors on a menu special for that night only. It does come at a price, though. Where they source their ingredients from, rent of location, an adequate amount of staff to have it all run smoothly. All of these things are a part of the budget. I spoke with Samantha about this idea. I, mean, I would compare a, a night going out to a Michelin-starred restaurant to like going to a theater or um, some other, you know, where you'd buy tickets. And sometimes you literally do. You know, these things can, tables can book up months in advance. And usually there are times where you get dressed up. It's a special occasion. They, sometimes, they often will give you little souvenirs to take on, whether it's the menu or some little snack for you to have the next day or even like a few hours after your meal to just think about it and it's like, oh, that was such a nice night last night. So so that's kind of what the what the Michelin Guide is aiming for is, is rewarding places that are offering that level of service. Food as an event isn't everyone's cup of tea. Some people want to have it their particular way in a style that's familiar rather than something curated that perhaps you wouldn't traditionally taste. When we come back from the break, we are going to explore some of the harsher realities of being a Michelin chef and the food world beyond the guide. Some may think gaining a Michelin star would bring riches and a constant flow of customers. In reality, there are a lot of contributing factors. Does the establishment only serve a chef's tasting menu or are there a la carte items? How much is the rent for the space? Can a restaurant survive on flair alone? I asked Graham why he ended up closing his restaurants in Chicago after so much success. Getting stars and, you know, achieving things on a critical level is not the same as monetary. If we decided we're serving sliders and chili and hot dog and whatever, that we would make money and not get any of the accolades. And we were driven more by that than the monetary side. So math never lies. You're paying 20000 a month for this, this much for labor. We're going to remove tables. People aren't going to turn the tables because if you make a resu at 6.30, we're not going to tell you at 8, you got to leave. We're doing a 15 course, whatever. So weekends, you're doing incredible. But Monday, Tuesday, they went like you're, you're doing five people. So that's what happened. We fell on our sword. We achieved all the accolades we wanted, but monetarily weren't able to do it. And I think in hindsight, everyone on the team was trying to do their best. It wasn't like my sous chef saying, we need to put caviar and foie gras on every day for I can't work here. Like we were saying, well, what if we chop this and, and made this into a soup and we can make money off of that. But again, think of Ublican, those places that make money they're serving pizzas and chicken leg with whatever they're serving, you know, 
and and they're making money where we were trying to do artichokes eight ways with this this and this and you know showing off what food was or what the potential was graham has since appeared on tv shows like masterchef opened a restaurant in china and most recently taken his culinary skills to fort worth texas there he opened a restaurant in partnership with chef felipe armenta there are a few differences with this restaurant than graham elliott in chicago one big difference is the menu is mainly a la carte and only a handful of seats are reserved for the chef's tasting menu. So while still a fine dining restaurant, they aren't financially relying on the tasting menu being sold out. For me, partnering with Philippe Armenta and the group here in Fort Worth, it's, it's best of both worlds where I can do this artsy stuff, but at the same time learn business side of what we can really do to be successful across the board. So I feel like I'm in my phase two of my career where I'm, I'm learning the business side of how to really do things. I asked Graham if he could give advice to a chef like Carmi from The Bear who really wanted a Michelin star or two. What would he say? You know, what's, what's great is when we had one star, I talked to Gordon Ramsay when we were doing MasterChef and he's like, you're going to contact the Michelin guy, call them, let them know what your goal is. And so I did that. Next year we got like one. Then the following year we got two. And it's the same thing. I would call them after and be like, we're so blessed to have two. We would love to get the three. I'm humble enough to say we're not there yet. And what do you think? And so it's one of those things where you're getting insight and you're able to work around. So you're not just sitting here fishing without bait, hoping Michelin comes. So I think it's important for other chefs to know that because I think I never knew it and most probably don't, but you can reach out to them and say, we want this, what can we do? When people talk about great food, Chicago is usually in that conversation. The city placed in this year's food and wine list of 10 best cities for food in the U.S. I'm not going to say that I was super sophisticated at first. It's like, wow, their pizza is like an inch and a half thick. Excellent. Give me two. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, in time, I kind of learned more about food. I really regret all the places I never went to. You know, I should have just, like, saved up my pennies and gone to, you know, all these, these places that were sort of legendary back in that time when I was on definitely more of a hot dog budget. That's Mike Gebert a James Beard award-winning food journalist and editor of Fooditor. Michelin star places may garner a lot of hype, but for some people, it's not worth it. I asked Mike what his thoughts are of a regular, nice restaurant versus one with a Michelin star. They're very committed to a kind of upscale dining that for me can get a little dull sometimes. I mean, I think most of the restaurants are pretty darn good. There was a kind of Korean slash barbecue restaurant for a while called Smalls. And for a while, I sort of said my my standard for food in Chicago is would I rather have eaten at Smalls than the meal I just had? You know, because I mean, they're smoked brisket with some like Korean, Asian flavoring to stuff was pretty, pretty, pretty fantastic, pretty sublime. And, you know, you're that to me was like the bar for your fancy schmancy restaurant was it you know it, it had to compare with that you know you, you got to be better than than that kind of relatively accessible stuff and not just that you have you know tablecloths and a long wine list 
while Michelin establishments add allure to the city, the people I spoke to for this episode all echoed the same sentiment. Chicago is a great city for food, period. If a satisfying, good meal is all you're after, Samantha says you can find it in any neighborhood. Explore. Find something just because, look, Michelin star restaurants are awesome and you should definitely go to one if you can afford it or, you know, want to save up for it. But also it has the problem of, you know, so many luxury things where you can build it up into being something and then be like, well, that was a thing. Sometimes I would rather have like four good meals than one absurdly good meal. And so like just go out, eat out, try places and have fun and that's that's one of the best things that you can do in chicago is that there's so so many awesome restaurants to try and just find something that you love i asked mike samantha and graham what they believe makes chicago's cuisine so unique i mean i think particularly charlie trotter had made chicago i mean Bonchet first but then trotter even more because he was an american so it wasn't just like we imported a french chef but it was like we're building our own food culture here. So, you know, people really started to, you know, pay attention and take Chicago food seriously. It wasn't just a place to get a steak. But, you know, it's a it's a truly international city. And so you have this wonderful mixture of people from everywhere combining um, their techniques, their heritages, um, you know, using local ingredients and ingredients that they've been able to get from all over the world. You get people working together who've been trained in the traditional French styles, but people who've also come from Mexico or, you know, come from Southeast Asia or, you know, are doing twists on pierogies because they're, you know, uh, they want to pay tribute to their own Polish heritage. I I think it's really just one of the best food cities in the entire world. I think that's the the most fun thing about Chicago. You go down to different spots, you know, Argyle, you've got all this access to different foods versus just chefy places, you know, in River North. And yeah, that to me is what's exciting. And what's crazy is it keeps evolving. I don't know. I just think that, that that's the cool thing about Chicago is you're going to have a chef all of a sudden come up next year. That was the sous chef at restaurant, whatever. And they're 23 and they're going to get an investor and it's going to be in the middle of Inglewood, you know, what, and, it's, and the food's awesome and people will go. Whether it's a Michelin star level experience or a corner store cafe ran with family recipes, food can cultivate a sense of community. I was raised by a mother who instilled in me a great relationship with food. So I asked Samantha, as a person who eats for a living, what is the importance of a good meal? It can make your day better in, in every way, uh, whether you're eating it with people you, you love and, and sharing that food with them, or even if you're eating it alone and just enjoying flavors that make you happy. You know, I, I, I think that they make a point in the bear about the root of the word hospital and hospitality being the same. And that's something that I've heard before. The reasons why when someone gets sick, people offer to bring them soup because it just, or when someone dies, uh, you bring casseroles or spreads or things like that. It's there's there are a few things in my mind more comforting and personal than sharing food. Literally breaking bread with someone. If there's anything to be learned from mainstream media like the Bear or even Ratatouille, it's that anyone can cook with the right passion. In the age of social media chefs, at-home private cooks, and top-notch hole-in-the-wall food, Graham begs the question: Can a chef even be defined? Chemistry geography, history, 
where things are from, why people cook what they do, taste, artistry, plating, execution. Like there's there's 50 different facets of what it is. So I always think, what is a chef nowadays? Is it a food historian? Someone that creates quote unquote content for TikTok, a reviewer, influencer, someone in the kitchen, someone that goes to restaurants and just photos and talks about, like it used to be someone that ran a restaurant and that's it. And now it's, there's a million different things. Just like a writer used to have to go to the Medill school and do this and then work with the New York times and then do whatever and apply to make an article. And it's like, now I love writing and I love investigating stuff and I can do Instagram, this Twitter, whatever, right. You know, threads this, and I can just highlight certain things that I care about and I'm going to do that. And there's no rules anymore. And there's no, you have to have this and this background. And I think it's so liberating. And again, it breaks down every barrier. And that's what's really exciting. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looped in Chicago, a new WBBM podcast. This episode of Looped in Chicago was hosted by me, Ariel Ravenet. This episode was produced and edited by myself, Jim Hankey, and Lizzie Baumgartner. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and follow us on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, follow us on social media at WBBM Podcasts.